Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World, the podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking about data monetization and the concept of data unions. And I'm joined by Shiv Malik. He's the head of growth for Streamer. Shiv, welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's my pleasure. And I want to start with the open question. What do you see as the opportunity for individuals and enterprises around data monetization? Well, so, you know, if you worked in an enterprise, uh, you'll know that that conversation around data monetization has been going on for a very long time. And we're seeing the opportunities in all sorts of new places as well, right? Especially in that sort of IoT field, we know that the, you know, the devices that are being created today uh, already have that, that, that notion that they're going to be generating data and that's going to be feeding into a larger network. The problem is, is obviously those networks aren't really there. Um, and that's from the enterprise side. And obviously then there's, you know, personal data that individuals are creating, uh, usually almost certainly by uh, interfacing with those platforms that are indeed earn, owned by and operated by enterprises. So the opportunities are really clearly very vast. And I think there's just lots of people have struggled with how most enterprises, you know, actually, let's take this from those who've succeeded, right? So it's, it's clear that there's a number of winners already in this, in this game. Uh, and those are businesses like Amazon or Facebook uh, and the like, who've not just succeeded in extracting data or utilizing it and feeding that back into their businesses to generate sort of different results, but they really have a different kind of culture to them, right? So they have been data driven almost entirely. And that means that they're not using data, or utilizing data just as a kind of uh, a way to inform their prejudices uh, or already sort of existing ideas and sort of supporting them. It's like, look, you know, if we take a fresh look at the data and be as unprejudiced as possible, what are the stories and information that we can pull from this that we can then lead our strategies with? Right. It actually takes a very, it's a, you know, quite a deep cultural shift and change. And Jeff Bezos famously, obviously, is very good at that. Everyone else, on the other hand, has either struggled with how to use data internally within their own businesses and certainly hasn't got to grips with how to monetize it. Uh, and, and at the moment, that sort of the, the view on that is, okay, well, look, there'll be marketplaces to sell and trade this data. Uh, and we're starting to see them sort of pop up. People are certainly experimenting with creating marketplaces and, and AWS has recently relaunched their offering on that front. And, and famously, if you think about it, sort of Bloomberg, Bloomberg terminals are in fact basically data marketplaces. And, you know, you can imagine them being both centralized and worried about quality control on one hand and other data marketplaces being very broad uh, and allowing all sorts of, you know, sort of almost a wild west of data where it's, you know, the reputation of the individual data retailer that matters. Are they creating quality products? And on the other hand, you can imagine situations in which, you know, people are concentrating on one vertical, whether it's health or automation or transport, or trying to go for a much broader sort of thing. And that's what we've tried at Streamer ourselves at one point, which is, you know, let's just try and make it amenable so developers can come along and actually pick up on different trends from all sorts of places, right? Sort of mix and match, pick and mix, if you want, of data sort of inputs. Because you don't know if you stick together transportation data, let's say, or location data in one place with, you know, crop yields in, in Southeast Asia and weather patterns, you're going to come up with an amazing, say, trading feed, right? To be able to predict X, Y, and Z uh, in the next two quarters. 
So, you know, that's that's the view at the moment. I, I don't think anyone's has a clear view onto who's winning, who's succeeding, but the tech is certainly uh, formulating on that basis. And I think you mentioned a couple of really interesting things in there or a couple of statements around centralized players versus marketplaces and there being a certain risk around a large amount of data being in the hands of very large companies or those customers or enterprises out there being averse to sharing too much data with other parties who can monetize it. And I know Apple have made a number of moves recently around mobile advertising and privacy that are starting to take some of the power away from the big digital agencies. But I want to talk about blockchain specifically. Where do you see blockchain technology providing a different capability that allows us to move differently? So how we're utilizing it is this. One of the major issues has been how do individuals or data that's generated by individuals, how does that get monetized? And from the individual perspective, obviously, that person wants to be able to say, oh, I want to be able to control this, right? I want to be able to own it. I want to be able to sell it myself. And I want to be able to make the revenue from that. It's going to have to be in conjunction with another series of, of either people or a party, an organizing application. And it's, it's not an easy task to do. It's, you know, it's been a long held idea by certain visionaries, say Jaron Lanier from Microsoft uh, and many others. But it hasn't emanated yet. And that's really what we've been working on. You realize when you tackle this that there are three elements to this. There's the marketplace problem. So how do you actually aggregate all of this data and bring it together into data sets? And when we're, when I talk about data, I usually, I'm almost certainly talking about real-time data rather than static data sets. How also then do you transport this data from literally from one place to another, right? So you need a kind of a back-end network to be able to do that. Otherwise, you're going to get stuck almost instantly. And the third part to that is then how do you actually then pay individuals? And that's actually where almost all of these projects have become unstuck. You know, you've talked to people who tried this in 2014. They had no clue as to how to get over that last bit. And if you can't pay the end user, then, you know, it isn't going to work, right? Because they're like, well, what's in it for me by sharing that data with you? Why would I work cooperatively with you if I'm not getting something out of it? And the reason why it hasn't worked is for all the reasons that blockchain was created, right? It's just that banks charge you too much to make those micropayments, right? So if I'm selling my data, I'll probably make, let's say, a dollar a week, maybe a month. We think it's actually a lot higher than that. But you can't make those payments as they come, as and when, through a usual fiat banking system because the trust levels are too high. You know, if you try to distribute a couple of cents to a million people, the bank will just turn around and laugh, right? They'll be like, no, it's going to cost you three or four cents to make that transaction so that they won't allow it. They haven't allowed it. And blockchain, that's where it comes to the fore, right? Because you've lowered the barriers of trust to making those transactions by using protocols. And in this case, we're using the Ethereum blockchain and actually we're using a side chain because still like Ethereum hasn't scaled enough that we can do most of those transactions through Ethereum itself. So we, we created the side chain. And I think that's where, you know, you're teasing out a very simple use case for blockchain, one of the original ones, obviously, lowering those transaction costs and making it applicable to something that's actually got a really wide application, which is micropayments. Having come from a journalistic background, I know, for example, that, you know, that was something that we thought would save The Guardian. If only people could pay a penny every time they read the article, that would be awesome because, you know, there's 60 million, 100 million unique users every month uh, and pay views even more than that. So brilliant. If they could pay a penny and it was very easy to do, then that would be excellent. But getting those systems off the ground is very difficult. But blockchain in that respect has made it incredibly easy. And 
a big part of the stream of proposition is the concepts of data unions. And it sounds a little bit like a combination of marketplaces, consortia, some of the familiar concepts we've heard and we're using in blockchain today. Tell us a little bit more about how Streamer works and what is the concept of a data union? So the original conception behind Streamer was, uh, was actually pretty simple. Uh, if you know what BitTorrent is, then you'll know it's a kind of a network of people who all add their computing power to share files between each other. So imagine you could do that, but for real-time data. So at the moment, real-time data, if you want to move data from one place to another, you usually have to use AWS uh, or something similar. You can use open source sort of protocols as well, but you have to host your own server. So it's all quite difficult. You know, there's no plug and play solution for any of that. So that's the original white paper, if you want, for Streamer. But then we quickly realized, well, look, if you've got this very decentralized network, lots and lots of nodes out there all contributing their compute power for payment, and you've got a whole lot of people who are like, oh, great, I've got these real-time data streams. I'd like to publish them, i.e., you can imagine, obviously, enterprises, say, with a whole load of IoT devices that need some kind of flexible network like that, where people can just, you know, or devices can drop in and drop out at any moment and in a sense need to be sort of self-governing when it comes to using the network and, and dropping in, dropping out. So AWS doesn't work in that way because all these machines will need sort of credit cards and accounts. and That's not going to happen. So if you can create this decentralization, well, where, what else could you do with it? And that's where really the conception of a data union came along. And so what is a data union? Well, it could also be termed if you want a data cooperative. And the kind of jargon in all of this, the European Union is now kind of using is, you know, mediators of individual data, right? So basically it's this, how do you resolve this problem of individuals owning and controlling their data? Well, you know, you have to go back to basics. What are those issues that I mentioned before? You know, you have this network issue, you have this marketplace problem. How do you aggregate all of the data to make a viable data set that people that actually want to buy? And then you have the payment protocol issue. So we've been working on all of those aspects. So, you know, we've been reaching out to developers and saying, hey, look, we've created what is basically your developer framework, right? You can take these basic elements and start creating your own data union. So what does it look like in practice? We have a team of four or five developers and there are sort of third party developers who came along and said, yeah, okay, we really like what you've been doing. We've got an idea. Why don't we create a browser plugin? And this browser plugin is called Swash. If you download it and, and they've got about 2000 members so far who have, then it simply asks you, look, this is meant to sell your data. So what data do you want to sell? It gives you a menu of options. So you can sell your browsing data, the stuff that, you know, if you use Google and you're searching, great. Okay, that's stuff that, again, you know, your, your browser knows what you do. And so does Google at the other end, or so does Facebook at the other end. But you also, you know, things can be locally hosted and locally generated if you want and sent somewhere else. So, you know, there's always two parties to data creation. We haven't exploited, in a sense, what we've been doing. The only people who've been able to exploit that are the centralized party on the other end. So this browser plugin then gives you that menu of options. And then it has a wallet that simply pays you every time that data is actually bought by a buyer at the other end. So the data flows through our network, the decentralized network I mentioned before. It goes to a marketplace. And when that marketplace product is then unlocked by a buyer by paying for it, and that can be done through a normal fiat bank account, then the buyer has access to that data and then the end users get paid. The people who built the application, so what about those four or five developers? What's in it for them? Well, because the payments go through a smart contract, well, it just automatically divvies up the payments. At the moment, I think the Swash team are taking about 30% of all the revenues. That's pretty healthy. And the end users get 70%. So that's how it's divided up. And that's one of the world's first data unions. And we hope, in a sense, there'll be more.
So where might they come from? Well, they could come from already existing applications because obviously they have millions of users and they have a very uncomfortable relationship with data, either it's monetization or around privacy, right? And what to do. And I think this is perhaps the bigger point here. We've danced around when it comes to personal information, personally identifiable information, danced around those, those explicit terms. It's always buried in that 70 pages of legalese of, of T's and C's that you sign in at the beginning and you kind of almost have no option but to say yes to. If you want to be part of the sort of digital world, you have to keep clicking yes. You know, it's buried in there that we will sell your data or we will be able to do what we want with it, basically. So it hasn't been very explicit. Well, let's start making it explicit. Let's just lay it on the table and say, yes, we'd like to sell your data. We want your permission and we want to give you a piece of that pie. Because once you say that, then you can start to create actually, you know, decent data products, one, you don't have to do it under the table, two, and we've seen companies go down because there have been scandals once it's been revealed what they're actually doing. And, you know, they've lost hundreds of millions of investments. And that's just crazy. Just be honest. And finally, now people can be honest because you can have a kind of rich consent mechanism. So you can just ask people, what do you want to sell? And two, you can say, okay, and when you do that, then we'll pay you. Um, and I think that's a much, much healthier way forward. Got you. And I think it's a really interesting model. And it's one that, as you said, has been touted before. You're taking some of the power away from centralized authorities who could at the moment be the only ones consuming or capturing that data and saying, actually, I'm prepared to share my data in more ways through the browser plugin to other parties, which I think is interesting. You're enabling the developer community to develop propositions and create marketplaces or products themselves. You can curate supply and demand on a more flexible and scalable way. But it still sounds a little bit in this case like it's individuals and developers together. Tell me a little bit more about some of the work you've been doing with enterprise, particularly telco. Yeah, you know, again, within the telco space, you know, it's been a long discussion about monetizing user data. You know, I'm no expert in that field per se, but what you realize very quickly is that there's a mound of data that could, in a sense, be monetized. There's some data, like called data records, for example, that really can't because they're governed in certain jurisdictions by really quite stringent legislation. For example, like in Finland or in Switzerland, like these are imprisonable offenses. You can't mess around with it because it is so private, in a sense. So what we've been talking about with various telcos, I won't give any names away as such, but it's like, again, do you want to reformulate this relationship? Because this is public knowledge, you know, in America, the major telcos there were monetizing data behind consumers' backs. They said, you know, a few years ago that they wouldn't do it anymore. And then, you know, a year later, found out again that they were. This is a very unhealthy brand relationship, right? The money is there. That's the temptation. That's why the, those major telcos have been doing that. But it turns out when they get caught, they don't, they, they, their users don't want them to do that. And certainly more than anything, it's because they're not getting anything out of it, right? They don't see any end benefit to giving up their privacy. That's the loss uh, on that end. So again, we've been trying to reformulate that relationship and say, hey, look, create a rich trust mechanism, rich consent mechanism, I should say. Create something that's slightly new pay for your data and give yourself a brand differentiator. Go out into the marketplace and say, because you know, obviously mobile network operators have a really tough time of it. It's very competitive field, almost wherever you are in the world. So reformulate that relationship with your users and give yourself that brand differentiator that says, if you remain customers with us for a long while, then look, you can sell your data with us. We will act on your behalf 
we will give you a piece of that pie in a sense because it's your data and we think that that will really add to that proposition and we're doing some research on this to see exactly how consumers will respond we're creating and the hope is that we can start creating these kind of proof of concept apps that can be tested in that research and maybe this is the key that unlocks finally for telcos, that access to that data, monetizing it, and also for the data buyers out there, they're very hungry for information from mobile users, right? What they do, they do have some decent insight from people using PCs and desktops. What they don't have is mobile data that is useful and isn't continuously changing and variegated, right? It's really pretty messy stuff that gets collected from mobile. So if you can create apps that actually have as their original purpose collecting information, collecting data and selling it, you, hopefully you get this pre-anonymized, very clean feeds of information that's very useful for data analytics companies. There's one other thing to mention on that front in terms of what we're actually doing, which is out in Southeast Asia, we're working with WWF and Union Bank, which is one of the bigger banks out there in, in the Philippines. And that kind of turned data unions on its head. They said, look, we would like to be a buyer of data. The problem is we can't get it because we can't incentivize individuals to create it. So what is the information that they want? Well, in this case, it's fisheries data. So a lot of, lots of artisan fishermen in the Philippines fish for tuna in protected regions. And they want to know, WWF that is, where the fish have been caught and when. It's pretty simple. It should be accessible information, but they get it six months later when obviously, you know, fish stocks have changed and it's just not real time information. So they want to create an app that effectively pays those fishermen for that data. And then the fishermen have an incentive to supply it. So, you know, we didn't expect that use case to come uh, and hit us in the face as it has. And it's excellent that it has and, and that WWF are kind of backing it. So that's also very exciting. Interesting. So in the first example, it's not quite that you're legitimizing or mutualizing the benefit of sharing telco data. It's actually that you're creating new data sets and gathering the consent from users to be able to use that data and obviously share in the value that's created. And then in the second example, you're actually creating entirely new sources of data altogether. Yes. And in a sense, why we've used that kind of union terminology is it hints at, yes, a kind of labor union, but actually it's meant to refer to a credit credit union, right? Which is, you know, a bunch of people getting together and realizing that those resources are much more powerful when, when combined with other people. And that's, in a sense, what we're referring to when we refer to that terminology. And again, we know that there's lots of enterprises out there, lots of application owners who might also be sort of in effect mid-size, right? They might just have a million people, which, you know, doesn't matter, is neither here nor there when it comes to the kind of the big players in Silicon Valley, but they will have lots of really unique data sets uh, and they'll be struggling with this and, and how to sort of monetize it, right? How do you get that off the ground? You know, why ruin your brand when it's kind of already working by kind of selling the data? You know, lots of people have already seen these data scandals and are very wary now, especially with the extra legislation, legislative burden that GDPR puts on people to kind of go down this route. Well, this hopefully makes it a lot easier, right? Oh, right, we can just work hand in hand with our users rather than behind their backs. Again, this kind of, it just, the technology that allows you and enables you to just have a different conversation. And yet it is in a sense cooperative because you have different stakeholders all gaining from working together. I hear you and it's a really interesting proposition when you start getting into the creating new data sets angle. 
there's probably a bunch of different data pools or areas that require consent or unique niche groups where the, the data could be hugely valuable if you were able to aggregate it and collect it. And you wouldn't need to have hundreds of millions of volumes, but you just need to find a way to be able to orchestrate that, reward people for doing it and create the digital experience. As with any blockchain network, obviously these things are going to be about scaling and adoption. What have been some of the learnings or some of the challenges that you've had to overcome while starting to get this off the ground? So on the scaling front, I think the first thing is it's a new idea. So it's a kind of a meme war, if you want, in trying to kind of educate both developers and enterprises like that this can be done differently. So that's the first thing. And then for the Swash team, for example, again, to the end user, to the regular guy on the street, if you want, this is something that's not really been trialed for, but let's sort of work together on this. So that, that's the first thing. It's an abstract idea. And that requires, in a sense, scaling. Uh, and we've got some great advisors on our, on our board, a guy called James Felton Keith, for example, who's a real activist and worked with Andrew Yang, who I'm sure many of your listeners will know, to talk about and have these conversations out in the US. And, and Yang has been a great proponent, if you want, of owning your data. And so it's been great to kind of also chat with him about this. He's taking a more legalistic route where we're taking a, a much more technological route, if you want. The, the technological scaling kind of challenges have been also, and, and then you also have this kind of marketing thing where you have to you know, basically get a whole lot of people. But that actually hasn't been as, you know, as we've realized, if we talk to data buyers, you, what they call in the data industry, a panel, right? The panel size for these data unions doesn't have to be in the tens of millions. It just has to be 100,000, for example, in the UK, or just a bit more than that, for these data sets to be very viable all of a sudden, right? So you don't need millions and millions and millions or tens of millions of people in a data union. You probably, as you sort of hinted, only 100,000, right? Or if you're talking about health data, probably even less. Then the technological challenge has been, how do we get this sort of the, the payment mechanism to scale? And if we want to get into the weeds of it, our first instantiation has been something that we called Monoplasma, which is basically a side chain that we created for one to many payments. Right. And that's been really interesting to develop because actually lots of people try and create a kind of all purpose payment rail that does one to many, many to one, one to one, et cetera, et cetera. Right. All these different types of, of payments. But if you strip it down to just one use case, suddenly you've got something much easier to engineer. So that's what we did because we only needed the one to many, right? A buyer comes along and has to pay a million people. Well, how do you solve that? And just do that. Don't try and create a general all-purpose payment system. So we were able to, to create that. Uh, it's been pretty successful so far. But now we're toying with, okay, well, look, if F2 comes along, wouldn't it be better if this is all on just on the main chain? To start with, what would be the transaction costs? You know, it's all about avoiding, in a sense, those transaction costs on Ethereum. The speed for us hasn't been, we don't need to process this as fast as, say, other people would, for example, on a decentralized exchange, right? So those have been the blockchain scaling issues on that end. And then the other one has been whether our own decentralized network would scale. It's so far managed the challenge. When you talk about real-time data networks, you talk about thousands of messages a second or tens of thousands, a hundred thousand, even millions of messages a second. And that still turns out to be pretty much nothing. Like if you can only do a couple of million messages a second, you're still pretty rubbish <laughs> as these things go. So you need to, you know, the, the numbers are really vast, but they kind of become meaningless for most users. So you need to be talking about billions for you to be a really truly scalable network. We're not there yet but we can cope up to a couple of million messages a second, we think. 
the demand for that isn't there yet, even even now. But as Swash scales, we need to ensure that our backend network can scale too. And it sounds like a big part of the long-term vision for yourselves is starting to get more machine-to-machine or IoT or vehicle-type data so that you can go beyond just browser-based information. You can add more devices, more people, and really scale that out. How does that fit into the proposition? So that goes back to that original vision, which is, look, if you've got this network, what is it good for and and why would anyone want to use it? So one use case is effectively data unions, which is very unique, original and seems to be taking off and in a really fascinating way. But there are a multitude of other use cases, including the original ones that we kind of envisaged when the white paper was was created. So I'll give you one of those, which would be, you know, you have a smart city. I don't think anyone now, if you started asking them, and saying, look, who do you want to run this smart city? Like the backend network, right? Because it's not going to be smart if all these devices aren't interconnected and you need a really easy way for all sorts of devices from all sorts of device manufacturers to just easily connect, right? Do you want Amazon to run that, right? Do you want AWS to run that? Do you want one telco to, to run that for you? Which is basically the proposition on the table right now. And I think anyone now would suddenly realize with or without COVID and the, the privacy issues that came around from governments running sort of these these apps themselves, these test and trace apps, that, you know, there are going to be massive privacy issues to that. Do we want to further empower, you know, a handful of conglomerates to be sit at the center of a massive intelligence gathering exercise, basically, right? Or not? And I think that's where this, you know, the streamer proposition really comes to the fore, which is that, you know, you're sending this data encrypted, which is what you do effectively on, on Amazon anyway. But there, there is no centralized point of failure. There is no centralized party to be beholden to or who can, in a sense, police that network in a way that can be discriminatory to various different parties. And it allows all sorts of parties to work together in a neutral way, right? Let's say if Samsung was running a network, that might be difficult for any other telco to then work with them or Ericsson, et cetera, et cetera, right? The list kind of goes on. And you, don't, you can't have that when you have a city because that's the whole point of a city. There's millions of people all rubbing alongside each other and they've all got different preferences. And that should be the case. A free kind of capitalist marketplace is supposed to work for devices or for anything else. Then you've got to accept all those preferences. So you need a neutral protocol. And that's what Stream is attempting to do. One other benefit of this, for example, is, you know, it's very difficult for most people to suddenly spin up uh, IoT real-time connections wherever they are. You know, again, the onboarding process is either you run your own server or you start, you know, with an Amazon account or AWS account, right? And AWS doesn't do accounts everywhere in the world. And it, it's a really kind of slightly onerous process, right? If you don't have a credit card, you don't have a, a bank account, or you've just got one small device, right? You don't want that hassle and you don't want, you know, fixed charges uh, for every month. So that's also what this is useful for. You go to, say, Kenya or, you know, the middle of favela in, in Brazil. You know, I'm just picking places that as long as you have an Internet connection, you can then start sending real time data from from that place. Right. As long as you have, you know, Wi-Fi, whatever it is. Great. You can just hook on to the streamer network and it's just there and it operates for you. And you're starting to get into the issues of interoperability in terms of wallets, in terms of how do you make the user experience? acceptable for people to log on to. And this is one that a number of other people are trying to address at the same time. So it sounds like it's a familiar problem. It also feels like 
you're running up adjacent to areas like DAGs and DAOs, kind of multi-IoT networks or decentralized autonomous organizations. Is Streamer a DAG? Is it a DAO? Is it adjacent? Where do you sit in the kind of ontology of blockchain initiatives? <laughs> That's a great question. So, okay, DAGs and DAOs are very different things, even though they sort of share the kind of similar letters, uh, if you want, in the, in the acronyms. So from the DAG perspective, so what's a DAG supposed to do? And, you know, the most famous kind of DAG project, if you want, is IOTA. Uh, well, we decided that we, creating this network, uh, we didn't want the payments to be part of, it's a bit more like Gollum. We were kind of sister projects at one point with Gollum. And I actually started off in Gollum as an advisor then and shifted to Streamer uh, back in late 2017 which seems a world away now. And if you're familiar with Gollum, you know that, look, it's all about bringing computing power together, right? It's a kind of that BitTorrent idea, um, uh, you know, and it's been an old idea. Like, how do you bring computing power together in a kind of equanimous way where people can just hop on and hop off, whether, you know, if you're the user or the provider of that compute power. So we keep that network, in a sense, separate from the payment rail. And we're using Ethereum as the payment rail, if you want, the way to kind of distribute those, those tokens and those payments. And so it's quite different uh, idea. Um, and, you know, the, the, the IOTA vision, I sense, if you want to use a bit more of a practical instantiation of a DAG, was that, you know, individual devices would, you know, you'd be using their computing power as well to be part of this network. And that's very ambitious and is really quite difficult to implement. And, you know, they've, they've obviously run up against problems and various problems in that regard. Uh, and one of them is, you know, well, will these devices have enough computing power, you know, because they're supposed to be running without being plugged in. So that's, you know, it's a major problem, which, you know, the question is, the jury's still out there as to whether that can be resolved. In regards to a DAO, so all crypto open source projects, in a sense, have struggled with this. It's like, what do you do when the central group of founders has kind of completed their you know, mission and other people are supposed to contribute to the code, what happens to them? Like, and then the famous one is obviously Vitalik. Like, what is Vitalik supposed to be doing? Like, is he the CEO of Ethereum? No, like he's like resolutely refused to play that game and play that role. But he is like running the Ethereum Foundation and obviously everyone loves to hear what he has to say and what he has to say has a lot of sway, right? He's not Satoshi Nakamoto in that respect, right? This kind of anonymous godlike figure who is yet never to reappear on earth again. So in, for, for streamers purposes, we're still struggling with that, like if we're really honest. We have this vision of also you know, fading away, melting away, and uh, in a sense, creating the governance structures. I think the benefit of where we are in time is that we can see all the lessons that have been learned already, uh, how difficult it is to create governance structures and how how actually really difficult it is to implement those governance structures when a network is already online and has you know many thousands of users don't do it that way right uh, there's too many interests at that point for anything to really work and that's the story of ethereum so we're we're forging ahead with a kind of a down model it's not resolved yet we're still figuring out uh you know those governance issues uh, and what that governance structure might look like. We kind of realize as well, it would be nice if there was a tap in there that we could sort of turn on. So there'll be funds coming out of the network um, to continue to give the kind of coders, whoever they may be and however they may be appointed and developers to kind of maintain and improve that network. So those are all the ideas we're playing around with. 
That's really interesting. And it's clearly a busy space. And a number of these technologies are still relatively nascent or still being explored. But in each case, you can see that there's a use case, there's a domain, there's value for individuals, for enterprises ready to be unlocked if we can just scale, if we can get adoption in the right place at the right time. And everyone's trying to jostle for that. From Streamer's perspective, what more do you guys need? Where are you looking next in terms of enterprise adoption, in terms of scaling? What more do you need to further the cause? I mean, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we need to make a, we still haven't created a network that is fully decentralized and that people can use. We haven't built the tokenomics yet into it all. So it isn't ready to go. Um, we don't there. And, and one of the big unknowns yet is actually how much will this cost, right? When you build a decentralized network, you don't set like a centralized price for any of this. And you don't have just one party for whom price has to be corresponded to. You've got many multiple partners because they're all decentralized nodes, right? adding in what they want when they want. So we don't know what that final price will be for the average price for a user to push real-time data from one place to another. And that, that's problematic, right? We have faith that it will be competitive. Our models lead us to believe that that will be the case, especially if people are using redundant computing power as they, as they should do in this model. So that's our original issue that we've got to contend with. But then when it comes to data union, you know, we've got enough capacity within the network at the moment to make that scale without it being too much of a, of a drag on anything else. So we're looking to work with telcos. Uh, right now, that's where we're reaching out to. We're working with one of the major, with a couple of major groups, groupings in that vertical. I'm trying not to say too much because we're under NDAs, obviously. And we're also uh, been having multiple conversations with other enterprises uh, of already existing uh, platforms. And I think it's, you know, again, just trying to be honest here. What we realize is that monetizing data hits up against the part of the business that tries to, uh, you know, if an enterprise has this part of their business, sort of create sort of advertising revenues, right? So you have a platform, you want to create advertising revenues. The problem is, is that if you're also selling your data, you're giving insight to potential advertisers into your users that they can then re-exploit on a different platform. It sounds kind of complicated, but it, it, that's how advertising parts of those businesses often feel. So in a sense, COVID has been a really interesting uh, and the pandemic has been really interesting from that perspective because advertising sort of just dropped out, right? Most of these businesses know where they get their money from is usually from the subscriber uh, uh, in that sense. But if they are purely advertising, then, you know, again, the bottom was dropped out of that. What do they do? How do they replace that revenue? And this has been one of those ideas that people have taken up on that basis. And that's been really fascinating to watch. And I think we're also starting to see from the non-enterprise side, other people saying, you know what, we can just move far more nimbly than an already existing enterprise. And we can create our own data union out of this. This is a great business model, right? Just create bespoke new applications that yes, require adoption, but that model or that route, sorry, to adoption is pretty clear. Like you'll get paid for using this so it's almost a no-brainer in a sense. And that's also been exciting to watch. So we're getting, we're getting scale in all sorts of very interesting places. And certainly the conversation around all of this is very favorable to what we're doing. Very good. So it sounds like there's plenty of runway ahead and no shortage of work for you guys to be doing in the meantime. Shiv, I want to say a big thank you to you for coming on the show. If the guys want to find out more about what you're doing, what Stream is doing, how can they get hold of you? Where can they find out more? And what else have you got going on in your life? 
Yeah, so you can get hold of me on Twitter. Um, if you follow me, prompt me to follow back. You can always DM me there. But uh, otherwise, you know, it's the usual channels on our website. Uh, you know, we're pretty responsive on, on email or through any of the other channels. We've got a dedicated developer forum as well you can use. So it's streamer.network. And that's streamer, stream and then R instead of ER. We seem to have stuck with the kind of early 2000s version of streamer if you want <laughs> um you can blame that on the ceo uh, henry so yeah that's usually time and what else have i got in my life well so you know as everyone will know like being part of a startup like this takes up a lot of time but i still sometimes like to put on my old hat as a journalist uh, i was a former investigative journalist for the guardian so Weirdly, I did a podcast about a year and a half ago that's probably about to emanate now on Audible in about a, a month or so. And, uh, and that's pretty exciting because uh, that's been a sort of a long time in the works. And that's on terrorism, so it's something completely different. That's certainly one thing. And then um, I like to keep myself sitting at the piano doing music. That's kept me sane through lockdown. And of course, I have a daughter. So, you know, homeschooling has been, uh, has been great fun. <laughs> Awesome, as if you didn't already had enough on your plate. Shiv, thanks very much again for coming on the show. I'll be sure to put links in all of the details below. Podcast, streamer, Twitter, all of that. Have a great rest of your week and stay safe out there. Thank you very much, Anthony, for having me. Really appreciated it. Great conversation. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, you can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain-related content. And until next time, stay safe out there.